Well, Psalm 89 is before us this morning. We haven't read it yet. And before I begin, I just want to uh, present it as a little bit of a riddle or a puzzle. Um, Psalm 89 presents the covenant love of God in the most high and glorious and beautiful language as unbreakable, eternal, forever, unfailing. And then it turns around on a dime and it prevents that, presents that same covenant as renounced and defiled and failed and broken. Psalm 89 is a puzzle of extremes. And this is uh, the riddle of this uh, third longest psalm in the Bible after Psalm 119, which doesn't really count because it's a collection of 22 psalms all linked together acrostically, and Psalm uh, 78. So it's a long psalm, and that's why I've uh, presented the outline I have in our bulletin. I'm going to read through it section by section. The poet gives us some some cues for how to work our way uh, through this psalm. Um, Growing up, my next door neighbors uh, were the Cohen family. They were a Jewish family. Um, I didn't know enough about Judaism at the time to know what type of of Judaism they practiced, but they did observe uh, Passover and Hanukkah. And so Victor was a few years older than me, and Jessica was a few years younger than me, and Jonathan a few years younger since. And I've totally lost touch with them. Uh, but they were my next door neighbors, and they were Jewish, and I was Catholic, and it was so weird. Um, not weird. We played together. We dug in the dirt and played with cars and did stuff like that. And I'd go over and knock on the door. Can Victor come out and play? You know, that was my, my, my summer mantra. It never dawned on me as a young boy growing up in the Catholic Church that I had the same songbook as those neighbors. That the Psalms of the Bible were a common hymnal. Um, now, in that church I grew up in, I didn't sing the Psalms very much, and I'm not sure how much they did in their practice of Judaism. But isn't it fascinating that we share with our Jewish friends a common songbook that God has given to his people of the Old Testament and the New Testament, this uh, songbook. And uh, as those of you who have endured 89 sermons now through the first 89 Psalms with me over the last 10 summers, uh, you, you know that, that the Psalter is divided into books, and Psalm 89 is at a pivotal position. It's the end of the third book. It's the end in the third book. And it anchors this third book by pointing us to God's promise to David, his steadfast love for David. And that's a part of the riddle and the puzzle that we want to explore today. Why is this love for David eternal, forever, unchanging love and broken, failed Falling apart. And I think the lesson, just to give you a little tip, most of you all know where we're going, is that Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus is the true anointed Son of His Heavenly Father who fulfills all these promises, in whom all of these promises are yes and amen. Uh, So that's where we're going. I think we have a common songbook because God wanted His people to look forward to Christ. And I think we can share this songbook with our Jewish friends and ask them, who's the Messiah? But as we begin, I want to read the first four verses. And in the outline, we see that here, uh, our psalmist is introducing the theme of the poet in a very, it's like a heading. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. 
You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Silah. Now the psalmist clearly announces the theme of his song in the opening line. I will sing of steadfast love and faithfulness. And he repeats the two terms in the second line. Now, we'll want to pay attention to the tenses here, because time and history is a big part of this story. What, the way things used to be, and the way things are now, and the future. And so he starts by saying, I will sing. I will sing into the future. There's a confidence and a hope at the beginning of this song. And we start with a general principle, God's eternal love. God's eternal love. And then in verses 3 and 4, he he takes a particular example of that love, how he chose David. You remember the story in Samuel, all the brothers are lined up there, and if you read the children's books or had like the felt things, you know, David's the small one. David's the least likely one. He has older brothers who are, should be king. But God chose David. These first four verses stand apart at the beginning of our psalm as a guide so we Don't get lost. And they introduce these theme words that are repeated again and again. To all generations. The Hebrew expression is generation to generation. Frame this in verse 1 and 4. Forever is also another term that's going to occur again and again. And as I said already, steadfast love and faithfulness. These are the two terms. These are the two terms that are constitutive of our Lord's character. Of who God is. When God reveals His name... On Mount Sinai to Moses in Exodus 34, remember he says, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. You see the generational forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin who will by no means clear the guilty. God is merciful and just at the same time. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God's character is eternal, steadfast love and justice generationally. And this is a psalm about that love. About His covenant that seals that love. Now, steadfast love, sometimes it's translated loving kindness, is a term that's explicitly linked with God's uh, covenant in the Bible. Now, in the modern world... If we think that you are duty-bound to do something, we think that kind of conflicts with love, right? We're all romantics. We're all individualists. To love someone, you have to do it freely, voluntarily. Um, Maybe, you know, it has to be in the moment. But, of course, this is not a biblical idea. (laughs) There's a lot of forms of love that are grounded in our deepest and most enduring commitments. I would say that's the best form of love. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, twice there Moses speaks. He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Moses can say God keeps his covenant and God keeps his steadfast love right next to each other. And he does that twice in chapter 7. God's covenant at Sinai is written in stone. It's an expression of steadfast love. I am the Lord your God. I am. I brought you out of Egypt. Steadfast love in the Bible is covenanted love. And after David is chosen and Solomon builds the temple, and this is a big moment because remember, God promised in his promise to David that your children would be on the throne. And Solomon's the first of his children that's on the throne. 
Solomon dedicates that temple in 1 Kings 8. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants. That's what God does. And then he talks about David. Your servants who walked before you with all their heart. You have kept your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. The Bible knows no distinction between duty and obligation and love. What is marriage? We have rings on our fingers, many of us who are married, as a sign of a boundless, eternal covenant till death do us part. It's an obligation and it's one of the deepest human relationships we have outside of family. But what is family? Family is, is a dutiful obligation as well. Is there a love greater? And it's referenced here in this psalm of a father's love for his son or his daughter. And yet if a father neglects their child or if a mother neglects her child, sufficiently so, the law can step in, right? There's a legal obligation here as well. The law doesn't make the natural love unnatural or less love. That's what steadfast love is. That's what this poem is about. And it quotes here, it quotes here, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the great covenant the Lord made with David, the apple of his eye, his beloved one. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This psalm at many points, we'll get to this in a later section, it's quoting, it's quoting God. It's holding his promises. It's holding God to his promises. God, you said it. I took notes. Second Samuel 7, the Lord made this promise to David. He'll raise up your offspring after you. Now think of this. Think of the Psalter. We have five books. It's 150 Psalms. But this, this, this collection of hymns, like this hymnal has hymns, songs from the 4th century, from the 12th century, from the 15th century, from the 21st century even. So we've been adding to the songs we've sing for the last, as well as 2,000 years ago, it has the psalms in it. We've been adding to the songs we sing, and we add new collections as they come. And the Psalter probably developed the same way, historically, in the life of God's people. First there was book one, and those were almost all psalms of David. And then we have more psalms of David in book two. And that ends in Psalm 72. And at the end of Psalm 72, thus ends the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. They thought they were done. It was the second edition of the book. They didn't know there was going to be a third edition. <laughs> but then book three came. And this is the end of book three. And think of the three-book Psalter, if you will. I don't know how long they had a three-book Psalter, Psalms 1 to 89. But if you would have had Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, about how the Lord has put his son David on the throne as his king, and then Psalm 89, where the name David is mentioned four times in this psalm, more than any other psalm. We see David in titles, but in the body of a psalm, David's name is only in the Psalter 12 times. Four of those are here. The whole history of God's people is bound up in his promise to King David. Books 1 through 3, as we've learned over the last year or so, preaching through book 3, ends on a pretty bad note. Psalm 88, last week or a couple weeks ago, was the darkest lament in the Bible. No hope, no confidence, no joy. Book 3 is written from a later perspective. Why isn't God keeping all his promises? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever prayed that? Why me? Why God? Why is this happening now? 
Maybe the next prayer after you ask why is, well, what good are they? What good do these promises to David, to Moses, to Abraham, to Jesus, what good are they for me? If they don't change my life, if I'm still going to lose my job, if I'm still going to go through a divorce, they didn't work. That's the question and the riddle of Psalm 89. And as he gets into the body of the psalm, I'm going to read now verses 5 to 18. So as you look in your Bibles at verses 5 to 18, the beginning of, of God's covenant promises is the God who promises. Who is the Lord who promises? And so the psalmist starts by talking about God, talking about God who promises. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves arise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it. You have founded them. The north and the south. You have created them. Tabor and Hermon. Joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. That's quite quite an introduction. It's quite a God. Who can make a promise to David and guarantee that forever into the future, into eternity... He will fulfill it. Who can make such a promise? Who can offer that kind of guarantee? The body of our psalm opens with this hymn to the Lord. And it's who he is. It's his identity as creator and redeemer that grounds his promises. And there are three sections to this hymn. Verses 5 to 8. It presents the Lord in relation to other heavenly beings. Verses 9, 13, his relation to the world as its creator. And verses 13 to 18, his relation to us, his people, as, his, as our redeemer. And these opening verses uh, use the language of the nations of mythology. God is in a heavenly council. It's like uh, the European parliament. And there are all sorts of gods all around. you know. But God is, is the most important one. He's like Zeus in the pantheon. Now... Old Testament Jews didn't believe in a pantheon of gods. We are monotheists. We're not Darwinists in our view of the Bible. We don't think that really long, long time ago, Jewish believers had this pagan, idolatrous view of gods. But they don't believe in that. But they do use the language of the nations that live around them and among them to explain God's majesty. If you think there are a bunch of gods in heaven, ours is the top one. He created everything. Yahweh alone can provide what is able. And remember too that not only was Israel surrounded by idolaters, Israel was influenced by idolaters. (laughs) 
right? Kings in the line of David set up ashtaras and, and poles in the temple, in the temple courtyard to worship idols. It's not like idolatry was ever far from their hearts. And it's not like idolatry is ever far from our hearts either, is it? Do you doubt that God can do what he promises? This is the God we worship. As he says to Job in a similar vein, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I dug out with my little finger the oceans and their great depths? Yahweh alone can provide. Yahweh alone is mighty. And that brings us to verses 9 to 13, his relation to the world. He excels all other gods in heaven for this reason. Because he alone is the creator God. The promises of God are founded in the promises of creation. Rahab here, which is a, a word for a sea monster or chaos. And a lot of the ancient mythologies of creation, the sea was chaos that the creator God then slayed or brought order to. And Rahab is a, is a word in, in Hebrew poetry that represents Egypt as well. So when God made dry land in the sea and swallowed up Egypt, Rahab, under those floodwaters after Moses and his people passed through, God was destroying chaos. He was destroying slavery and oppression. And that's the picture here. Whatever fix you are in, the God of heaven created it. Psalm 88, that dark lament a couple weeks ago, Remember Psalm 88 was a lament because it said, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you putting me through this trial? And the beginning of biblical Lent is acknowledging that God gave us the problem that we're dealing with. God has put us where we are. And God can deliver us and preserve us through it for that reason. And verse 15 to 18, turn to those who worship the Lord, climaxing in the king who belongs to the Lord, David. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. Well, that brings us to the main part, uh, the central part of the body of this psalm, verses 19 through 37. And I'm going to read again, but note as I start to read that this is a quote. All of these verses, this whole central section of the psalm is God, Yahweh's words. Now imagine that you bought a car and it was a junker. It was a lemon. Like there are lemon laws, right? You can take your car back. You have a warranty. And if you have to go take your car back and deal with all the legal headaches, you're going to bring your warranty paperwork, right? And you're going to say, you promised to do this and this and this. You have to cover the the powertrain and all of these things. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's quoting God's promises. So let's read together. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said... I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever. And his throne is the days of the heavens. 
If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all have I sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, like a faithful witness in the skies. Now in this third part of the psalm, the psalmist looks back on the promises the Lord has made to David. He recalls that scene in Jesse's house. And you notice he uses the language of election. God chose him. David is the Lord's chosen one. And the Lord promises to be with David, to give him victory, to crush his foes, to strike down those who hate him. The Lord's anointed looks to God as to his father. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, my rock of salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of all the earth. This takes us right back to Psalm 2, brothers and sisters. Remember the nations are in a rage. And and the Lord speaks from heaven, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this is the king, God's king, his son on the throne in Israel. And the promises made to David exceed anything that could ever be fulfilled. This, brothers and sisters, what the Old Testament is telling us is that this isn't about geopolitics. This isn't about restarting the nation of Israel in the Middle East. God is making here heavenly spiritual promises. David is a type and shadow of a Messiah, of an anointed one to come, of a king who will sit on a heavenly throne. Notice that God's promise is generational. It's not just David, but it's all of his offspring, his seed, to use that language that is used of Abraham and the promise to him and his seed. And as we know, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, the seed is Christ. His promise is a promise as well of mercy. David's sons won't stay on the throne because they'll be perfect. And they won't stay on the throne because they deserve it. God will uphold his law. God anticipates and accounts for the sins of his people. If his children, if the children of the king forsake my law and don't walk according to my rules, if they don't keep my statutes and my commandments, then, if, then statement, you all know how logic works, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. This psalm is probably written from the perspective of exile or post-exile. And they've seen the rod. They've seen the stripes. Seventy years. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false. I will not violate my, my covenant. You see, the covenant anticipated the sin of God's people. He was going to wash them. He was going to send a servant. Isaiah the prophet will tell us a suffering servant who would bear their iniquities for them. And this was explicit in the oracle of 2 Samuel 7. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. God is foretelling a king who's going to break all the rules, or rather be punished for breaking all the rules, and yet 
rule forever. There's no such merely human king in the history of man. But there is one seated at the right hand of God the Father. So this is not the topic that is the focus of our song, how our sins are taken away. But yet it is promised that through the cross they will be taken away. And this section closes with an appeal to the enduring witness of the skies, the sun and the moon. His offspring shall endure forever as long as the sun, like the moon, established forever. You know the line in this Broadway play, Annie, and the sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> Bet your bottom dollar. You want to take any bets on the sun coming up tomorrow? That's the language of the psalmist. Christ will rule on his throne. Christ must reign forever and ever. And then this brings us to the present. Verse 38. Let's read this next section through verse 45. And hear what happens. What's going on now? Here's the problem of the riddle. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against the Messiah, your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become a scorn to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease. And cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. It's quite a list of complaints. If God has a complaint box, it's full. It's not the enemies. It's not the world. It's not the circumstances. He doesn't blame fate. God is on the hook for it all. Just like the lament of Psalm 88. Remember it had that list of you, 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 you. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. Why, God, are you doing this to me? Seven verses here are in the second person, accusative. I, I'm, I'm making up a, a grammatical thing. Accus, accusing God, seven verses. You, you, you. And there were seven uses of the word chesed, God's steadfast love. And there were seven uses in this psalm of the word faithfulness, God's Love and faithfulness are perfectly presented in the first half of this psalm. And now his failures are perfectly presented. The riddle of this psalm is the opposites. But now. But now. I mean the list of things is horrible. The crown is in the dirt. The walls are breached. Foes are exalted. Failure in battle. Cut short the days of his youth. King forget the name. I think it was Jeconiah died at the age of 18. Some people think it's an allusion to that. If any of you have ever been in marketing or PR, there's a saying, um, it's always good to under-promise and over-deliver. Right? You want to set expectations, but modest expectations, so you can give them the goods, right? This is the opposite. <laughs> God has over-promised. It seems like he's under-delivering. contrast between God's promises and our experiences can be stark. It's like a married couple that goes into counseling and the wife looks back to the wedding vows, all the things that were promised, you know, to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness, for death. And she turns to her husband and, and he hasn't done any of it. 
You've broken every last word of your vow. God is in the dock. God is in trial. Here we are. Things aren't going so well. What are we going to do? Now, I'm sure, dear Christian, by way of application, that you can sympathize. Whether it's your marriage or your job, your career, or maybe your faith has not gone how you anticipated when you started. Maybe a move to a new city. Things seem to never measure up to our expectations in this world, this sin-stained, sorrowful world, this veil of tears. Seems like we have two options. We can eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Forget it. Forget it all. Forget these promises that never matter, seemingly. Or, um, or we can trust in God and His promises that He will be faithful. Look how this psalm closes with me, verses 46 to 51. And let's use this as a guide for how we look to God's promises today. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of men. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. How I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. In closing, the psalmist asks how long and calls on the Lord to remember. In both of these ways, I submit to you that the psalmist is closing in a note of confident, hopeful faith. Remember is a covenant verb. It's a covenant action. To remember is to invoke the terms of a covenant and to act to fulfill them. The book of Exodus opens with the people crying out in slavery. And Moses writes, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This remembering is what follows in the whole next 20 chapters in the Exodus. God acts. How long implies that there's a clock running. How long implies an end to our suffering? And the psalmist says, remember God, I'm not one of them handling beings. I'm dust. I'm headed for the grave. He meditates on his death. God, what good is a generational promise? Remember when the Lord came to Abraham, he said, okay, I'm going to bless you so richly, so abundantly, and this is what's going to happen. Your children for 400 years are going to be slaves. It's like, thanks, God. That's wonderful. Now, that's a manageable expectation, right? He set the bar really low. The Bible has a pretty long view of God's faithfulness. The promises are always, from the beginning, generational. And from the time of this psalm, about another 500 years would pass before Christ would fulfill it in full. What do you do if you're a saint living in there, living and dying, not seeing the big picture? What do you do? How do you live? The perspective of Psalm 89 is the perspective of those trusting 
confidently that the Lord is bringing justice. And the conclusion of this psalm is another bookmarker. This, this verse, verse 53, Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen, appears, this, this benediction appears at the end of every one of the, the books. It separates the five books of the Psalter. And I submit to you also here that it, it teaches us that there is a book four and a book five. That God's not done with this story. The tragedy that we might feel like is our lives, the experience that's so distant from the promises of God and the life of faith that we trust in. The tragedy that is our life has a fourth and fifth act. God is redeeming and saving. And this is why his songs, the praises of his people, are so focused on the Messiah, on the King. Christ will come. God is sending a Redeemer. The mountains, Psalm 72, will sing prosperity, fullness. When I was nine years old, my brother died. I've told this story a hundred times, but I can never get out of my mind. The reading that I was given in his funeral service, which was Revelation 20, that every tear will be wiped away and all things will be made new. That's our heavenly hope and confidence, brothers and sisters. That's our hope, which the Psalter urges us onto, to Christ. And so we can end with Revelation chapter 1. John, writing to a church persecuted. Babylon, the evil whore of Babylon, tearing them to pieces. Nero, dipping them in oil and lighting his gardens by burning them in flames. And where does John, imprisoned, isolated on the island, Patmos, Where does he look? From where does the voice come? Using the language of Psalm 89, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness in the heavens, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Yes, all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. Let us pray. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. And your church is sent forth with the gospel of peace and grace because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him who is enthroned above. And we go boldly. We bear witness boldly to your love and faithfulness. And Lord, even here on our pilgrimage, you are with us. You have been mocked. You have been abandoned. And you have been betrayed. But you are with your people in and through their sufferings. And are bringing us home to our heavenly rest. To green pastures and still waters. In your name we pray confidently. And urge you to come, Lord, quickly. Amen.